We'll find the book of Nehemiah as we continue our journey through this book. Now, folks, I'm going to do a little something different tonight, okay? And it's going to be a bit hard to follow me completely. I'll try to keep you abreast of everything. But uh, if you would begin with me in chapter 9, in chapter 9... But the last three or four chapters of the book of Nehemiah do not lend themselves to going small passage by passage the way we have done or even one chapter at a time uh, with the overlap of some of the material. It's easier to cover these last chapters as a block. And so we're going to be doing that tonight. But since it's been three weeks since we've been in the book of Nehemiah, uh, probably some of you may have forgotten some the overview and tonight being I'm anticipating being the last message that we do on the book of Nehemiah I'm going to go back and do a review to help you get your arms around the book of Nehemiah again we're going to cover some ground that we've already covered by way of review and summary and just trying to pull the message of the whole book together uh, before we look at some of the final passages in the book and close out the book in its entirety. But what I want you to do is read with me tonight beginning in chapter 9 and we're looking at the subject matter, confession, worship, vows, and the same old sins again. Confession, worship, vows and the same old sins again that's tonight's topic okay beginning in verse 1 chapter 9 now on the 24th day of this month the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law uh, law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day for another quarter of the day they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God look down at verse 6 they said you are the Lord you alone you have made heaven the heavens the heaven of heavens with all their hosts the earth and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you you are the Lord the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham you found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring uh, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone in the mighty waters. 
By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness." The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them every corner so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. Look down at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies Folks, as I mentioned, I want to spend a significant amount of time tonight reviewing where we have been in the book. Okay? In the first lesson, those of you who were with us back then, in the very first lesson, we saw Nehemiah finding out the state of his people back home. He got the report. And when he found out that the walls were still in ruins and the people were exposed to their enemies, remember what his response was? He was grieved by that. Now you'll recall they had gotten busy and they'd rebuilt the temple and dedicated it in 515 B.C. under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. And then in 458 B.C., Ezra led another wave of exiles back home. They, again, they've been in exile 
in Babylon for 70 years. The Persians have defeated the Babylonians. Cyrus had issued the decree that they could go back home. And so the first wave under Zerubbabel, second wave comes back under Ezra. But the people were still subject to attack. And so Nehemiah leads a third group in 445 B.C. Uh, to do what they did. Namely, to finish rebuilding the walls so that they would be secure again. Nehemiah was no doubt a man under divine appointment. He's like Esther. Remember Esther? Mordecai told Esther, Esther, for such a time as this, God has placed you where you are. For such a time as this. We could say the very same thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the Persian king. Nehemiah was a layman. Remember that. Ezra was a teacher. He was a priest. He was a scholar. Nehemiah was a leader. And God used these two, Nehemiah and Ezra, in tremendous ways together. It would be like today a key pastor and a key business leader getting together to do some great project for God. And you have the business leader with this vision that God's put on his heart. You have, a, you have a key spiritual leader who's keeping the people grounded in the word of God the whole time. And both of these men working together to accomplish great things for God. That's what you have under Nehemiah and Ezra. Well, the cupbearer was one of the, one of the ancient king's most trusted uh, persons in his court. What did the cupbearer do? He would taste all the food and drink, right? Make sure nobody had poisoned the king. Make sure nobody was trying to knock the king off. And so the cupbearer would have to eat all his food first, the portions of it, and drink his drink first. And I guess they kind of watched the cupbearer to make sure that, you know, he wasn't going to kill over before they went out and served everything to the king. Well, obviously, cupbearers were very trusted individuals. They had to be. He was more than just a butler. This was Nehemiah's role. Now, folks, do you think all this was coincidence? Absolutely not. Here are the walls of Jerusalem all broken down. Everybody's still living under this edict given years earlier by the Persian king that the walls... Uh, could not be fortified. Jerusalem's in shambles and they've not been able to get on with life. But here's this Jew, Nehemiah. He's a cupbearer to the current Persian king. Coincidence? No. God places people where he wants them for divine appointments. Why are you where you are at this period in your life? The relationships you have, the job you might have, the circumstances you face. What's God want to do in your life right around you? You and I need to wake up every morning with the sense of 
divine appointment that God has placed us here to be salt and light. We saw also in chapter 2 when faced with great challenges, what did Nehemiah do? What's the first thing Nehemiah had done? He was a prayer warrior. He was a prayer warrior. All of his plans were born out of prayer. His time with God, that four months that he spent, four months that transpired when his brothers came and he first learned the condition of the Jews back home till that day that he went sad before the king and the king said, What's wrong with you, Nehemiah? Your face is downcast. Four months have passed and during that four months he's been bathing this whole situation in prayer. And he's got a plan that he wants to do. And we know that that was a plan born out of his prayer life. And so he tells the king what God's put in his heart to do. The king gives him clearance to go back and rebuild the city. He gave the king a definite period of time when he would return. Hang on to that thought because that's going to play back in tonight, okay? In chapter 13, he gave the king a time, definite period of time. Does anybody remember how long that's going to turn out to be? 12 years, 12 years, like I say, hang on to that thought, he asked for letters to the surrounding governors granting him the right of passage so they wouldn't interfere with him, he asked for letters giving him the materials needed from neighbors to do the job. The king gives him everything that he asks for. You see how God's at work. God's able. You need to memorize Ephesians 3.20 that says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations Forever and ever. God is able to do more than we can even ask or even think. When he got there, he avoided haste. He took time to take in the big picture, gain understanding. And then what did he do? He shared his burden with the Jews there. He pointed out to others, look at us. There's so much more that God wants to do in and through us. We need to get on the stick. We need to get obedient to God. We need to do the work that God's called us to do. We need to get busy with God's agenda. Nehemiah is moving the people on to God's agenda. And that's what a leader does. He moves people along to God's agenda. Because without a leader, people just kind of tend to flounder. And then we saw in chapter 3 another, another key principle. When faced with great challenges, everybody's got to take responsibility. 
Everybody had a job to do. He put everybody to work, didn't he? What a picture for the church, right? The church is the body of Christ. We're members of his body. We have a different spiritual gift, a different role to play. That's God's plan. There's a hand, there's a foot, there's an eye, there's a mouth. Different parts of the body. We come together. When everybody comes together doing their responsibility, the body is complete and functions the way a body should function. And Nehemiah gets them to see that spiritually. And so he gives them all. There's a division of labor. A division of labor that he gets them involved with. And this division of labor has to do with rebuilding the wall around the city. And they started these gates, right? Each gate had a function in the city. There were ten of them. Uh, There was the sheep gate, the fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, the inspection gate. All of these were the gates that had to be repaired. And everybody was assigned their share. Everybody had a part and everybody had a mind to work. The spiritual leadership was involved. They let out. They let out in the work, the spiritual leaders. They rolled up their sleeves and got in there with the people. The government officials were involved. Everyday men and women were involved. People like goldsmiths and perfume makers. The servants were involved. Levites were servants in the temple. There's only one exception of folks that didn't get involved. Remember who they were? Come on class, you've not forgotten so much in three weeks, have you? Who is the one group that just kind of felt like they were too good to get involved? Some of them, no, the priests, they're, they're, they jumped in. Spiritual leaders jumped in, rolled up their sleeves too. It was some of the nobles. Remember that? Felt like I guess they were too good to roll up their sleeves and get involved. And the work was dear to them. Do you remember why the work was so dear to everybody involved? Come on, answer me tonight. Why was the work so near and dear to everybody? Why the, the ownership? Why did they have ownership? Thank you, Joyce. Nehemiah got them working, rebuilding the walls and the gates that were close to their homes. And so everybody rebuilding the walls and the gates close to their homes would have been near and dear to their hearts. It would have made their area of the city safer and their homes safer. So Nehemiah got people working where they felt invested in it. Attitude was important. We saw that the people were zealous. Romans 12 tells us in the church, whatever our gift is, we're to do it with all of our heart. Not just carry out your spiritual gift, but do it with the right attitude, the right spirit of service. Attitude's important. 
Do you know what your gift is? Are you doing it? And are you doing it with the right and the proper attitude? Then we saw a dark corner turned in the book. You remember what the dark corner was? What was the, what was the darkness that entered into the narrative? Sanballat and Tobiah. Enemies. Opposition to God's work developed. And folks, it'll always develop, won't it? Satan doesn't want to see God's work prosper. Satan doesn't want to see God's people prosper. And so how does Satan work? How does he oppose us? Through direct agency, himself, through deception, lies, thievery, murder, through the agency of demons. The New Testament talks about principalities and powers through the agent of people, Herod. In the New Testament, Judas, Sanballat, and Tobiah here in this text. So Satan used people in their midst to oppose the work. And the opposition came in different forms. There was in chapter 4 verses 1 to 3, there was ridicule and mockery. They were trying to ridicule the people, talk down to them and just mock them and make them feel small. And then in, in verse uh, 10 through 12 of chapter 4, they intimidated them with fear. Fear and threats. And then, then there, there was false accusations. And then in chapter 4, their anger turned to hostility and further ridicule. And then they actually plotted out specific attacks against them, right? And they hired people to try to discredit Nehemiah. I mean, these, these surrounding neighbors around Jerusalem, they are going all out to try to hinder this work. They do not want to see the city of Jerusalem rebuilt and the Jews prospering. In your mind, fast forward decades, centuries. Why would Satan not want God's people prospering? The Messiah. The Messiah that according to the flesh would come through Jewish lines. Chapter 5 exposed us to a problem on the inside. What was that problem on the inside? Exactly. The wealthier members among them had gobbled up everything. All the lands and just all the assets and charging their brothers exorbitant interest and they were allowed to charge Gentiles interest they were not allowed in the Mosaic law to charge their brother their, their fellow Jews interest so Nehemiah confronts them and gets them to stop 
and gets them to give back what they've taken that, that was more than they should have. In chapter 6, the enemies try to lure Nehemiah away from the work and get him miles and miles and miles and miles and miles away uh, north, uh, northwest of where he was. They try to get him away because what are they going to do to the leader now when everything else has failed? They're going to try to kill him. And he refuses to come down from the work and, and, and go with them. Well, once they get the wall rebuilt, the last time we were together, once they got the wall rebuilt, what did they do? They had an awesome worship service. And they gave attention to the reading and the exposition of the Word of God. Folks, this is what it was all about. So once they settled back into security, they could get on with being the people of God on mission and get back to their spiritual task. And so they have this awesome worship service. They bring in Ezra. Again, he's a spiritual leader. They bring Ezra in. They set up a pulpit, a raised platform. Uh, it's a humongous crowd of 50,000, so they put they station people all through the crowd. Nehemiah, uh, Ezra rather, is reading the scripture all day, and uh, the people stationed having their little groupings, they, they are expounding the word of God to the people around them so that the people will understand the word of God. Now remember, they've been in exile. And now they've been back. They haven't had everything rebuilt. They haven't got back to what they were supposed to be doing. It, it's been probably a hundred years or more since they've had opportunity to have worship service like this and be exposed to the Word of God. And so when they're hearing the Word of God and the exposition of the Word of God, what do they begin to do? They begin to weep and cry. Because there's been such a famine of the word. And here they are hearing the word again. And they're just so moved by that. They, they break down in tears. But Nehemiah tells them and Ezra tells them. No, wait folks. This is a day of rejoicing. Be glad. Go back to your homes and, and celebrate. This is a glad, glad day. Well... Then what happens in chapter 8, connected with the reading of the Word of God? Yes, but what, what, there was a specific prompting from the preaching of the Word of God. There was a prompting that got their attention. Tabernacles. As they're giving their attention to the reading of the Word of God, they discover that every year they're supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Where they go out in the wilderness and they, and they get the materials, uh, the trees and all, 
to, to make booths to live in for a week because they are, to, they are to remember their time in the wilderness when they did not have permanent homes and they were living in temporary structures and yet how God had looked after them in the wilderness and provided for them. And God said they were to do this festival every year just like they were to observe Passover and Pentecost. They were to do this. This was to be a key festival. And, and they're, they're reading now, uh-oh, we've not been doing this. And so they get back out there and they, and they do that. Oh, absolutely. God's provision and God's presence is what... Exactly. And they were to remember that. And that's what this festival each year was to help them to remember. God's protection, God's provision, God's presence. He's a covenant-keeping God. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> that brings us down to what we read tonight in chapter 9. Chapter 9, notice what he does there. What is he giving? He's giving a review of God's goodness and their rebellion. Underscore verses 6 to 15 because in verses 6 to 15, he's talking about God's goodness. And reviewing their history a little bit. How God had been so kind and gracious and good to them. And then underscore verses 16 to 34. Because then he starts telling about the people's sin and rebellion in the midst of God's goodness. Here's God. He's the covenant keeping God. But look at what his people have done. Look at how his people have sinned and turned away from him and not listened to his law and not obeyed his commands. God's been faithful, but we've not. And then in chapter 9, beginning in verse 38 and going uh, through chapter 10, verse 39, what do they do at that point? They pledge what they are going to do from here on out. Now, folks, stick with me tonight, okay? We're going somewhere. I want you to, I want you to see how this is going to end. In chapter 9, verse 38, look at this. It says, because of all this, they, they've been reciting God's covenant-keeping grace and their sin... And, 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 and they come to the close of that. And verse 38 of chapter 9 says, Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. They're going to pledge to be the people of God. To obey God. You see that? They're going to pledge to be God's people. And in chapter 10, 
they are going to specifically walk through the different things involved in that pledge. For example, look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Look at verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every uh, debt. Look at verse 32. We will take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Verse 35. We, we obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree every year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our, of our cattle. Read that whole chapter, all the different things that they pledge. Again, very important because you're going to see something in a minute, okay? Go back and study every single thing that the people pledge that they are going to start doing now as God's people. Chapter 12, verse 27 through 43, they have a big celebration now and a dedication of the wall. They've previously had the big worship service where they rededicated themselves to the reading of God's word. Now in chapter 12 they're having this big celebration service recognizing the dedication, the completion and dedication of the wall. Chapter 12 beginning in verse 44 they put everything in order as it should be. So they have a celebration, they put everything in order as it should be. Now look at chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So they're giving their attention again to the word of God and they are taking steps to obey the word of God. They've had a big celebration, dedicating the wall, putting everything in order. They turn their attention again to the Word of God, and they do what the Word of God says. Oh, if the book of Nehemiah would have only ended right there. Okay? Nehemiah returns to Artaxerxes in 433 B.C., 12 years after he's come to Jerusalem. 
Now, folks, we don't know. Nehemiah is going to come back again to Jerusalem, okay? But at the end of this 12 years of being the governor, he goes back to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, like he promised, after 12 years. And he stays there a while before coming back to Jerusalem again. How long was he there? We don't know exactly. We know he was at least back in Persia for probably six months to a year. It's believed he may have been back in Persia for as long as ten years. But Nehemiah, boy don't you know Nehemiah goes back to Persia and he's celebrating, right? You with me tonight? He's celebrating. God's led him to do all this. They got everything in order. They've got the walls rebuilt. They've dedicated the walls. They've put everything in order. The people have taken on this new pledge that never again are they going to let these things happen. They're giving their attention to God's word. Nehemiah leaves. Goes back to Persia. Look at verse 5. Of chapter 13. Back up to verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God. And who was related to Tobiah. Prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. How in the world can you tell me how in the world has Eliashib let Tobiah have a room in the temple, the storehouse room, where they're supposed to be bringing all the grain that they promised to bring in. And here is the enemy who's living in the temple, in a room in the temple. Now, why was it? It was his family, right? What does Nehemiah do? He gets angry and casts Tobiah and his things out and, and he cleanses that room. Who's that make you think of? Jesus, when he walks in the temple and cleanses the temple. And then I want you to see something else. Nehemiah discovers sins that have crept right back in. Again, there's the making room for Tobiah. Then look at verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. 
Look at verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Look at verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Folks, think about this. The sins that have crept back in. The enemy, Tobiah, that they fought so hard to overcome. <laughs> he's not just in the city. He's, he's living in the temple. They're not giving portions like they're supposed to to the Levites. They are working and selling on the Sabbath. And they're involved once again in intermarriage. Again, we don't know the time frame. But sometime between six months or a year and ten years. In that short, relatively short period of time that Nehemiah has left. All of this junk has crept right back in. What does that tell you? What does that tell us? How prone we are to sin. The same old stuff they got in the victory over. Here they are dealing with it again. What did God tell? Does anybody remember what God told Cain about sin? Sin is crouching at your door, but you've got to overcome it. You've got to guard your heart. Can't drift. Romans 6, Romans 12, Colossians 3. Just as we once yielded our members to things of unrighteousness, now we've got to yield our members to God's righteousness. We've got to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We've got to give attention to our spiritual walk. We can't drift It also says something about Nehemiah's leadership too. In leadership period, right? People need leadership. People need a Nehemiah. People need somebody. God's people need somebody to keep bringing them back to the word of God and obedience to God. Because people, if there's not leadership, they'll just kind of drift and start doing the same old thing again. Exactly. So here they are right back again. And Nehemiah, before the book closes out, Nehemiah has to deal once again with all of these sins one by one by one and get rid of them all again. And the book ends, Nehemiah saying what? Remember me, O God. Remember me.
Folks, today's victories do not guarantee tomorrow's victories. The sin you overcame, the temptation and sin you dealt with yesterday and maybe overcame, guess what? It's still crouching at your door. You got to deal with it. Your walk with God is a daily thing, a constant thing. We can't drift. We can't just leave things to chance. We can't just kick things into neutral. We've got to stay in God's Word. We've got to stay in prayer. We've got to stay in community with one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, challenging one another. We've got to stay at it. Are you just drifting? Have you kicked it up in the neutral? Are you leaving things to chance? If you are, I can pretty well tell you where you are. You're, maybe there was a period of revival in your life. Five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, twenty-five years. You've kicked things in the neutral. Guess what? You're right back where you were before you had that revival in your life. Constant diligence. Constant attention. We've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. We've got to stay in His Word. And we've got to stay in prayer. And again, in fellowship with His people. Rooting out those sins that so easily creep back in. And staying on target. And that's how the book closes. Really showing us the need to guard our heart.